This is Hebrew Hits, presented by JTribeRadio.com. I'm your host, Malia, and I sit down with people who live by the motto, it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. Welcome to the 38th episode of Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Yona Weiss. He's actually on a Zoom call with me right now because he's in Israel. We are going to get to that all right when we start the episode. But first, I want to please ask you if you can go follow Hebrew Hits Radio on YouTube. Please subscribe and follow Hebrew Hits on all socials at Hebrew underscore hits. And please subscribe to Hebrew Hits on all your favorite streaming apps. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of them. Go give us a follow. Right now, I have cost segregation expert Yona Weiss with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So I know that when we were talking, um, you know, on the phone, you were saying how you were brought up, um, you know, you're in California, now you live in Israel. So tell us a little bit about your background. It's been a, it's been a really interesting uh, journey. I mean, to tell you the truth, it's been, it's been a long one. But yeah, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles, and um, went to college, San Diego, San Diego State University. And decided basically early on that I really wanted to go to Israel. I'd never been to Israel. So it was, it was part of my dream. And uh, I wanted to go literally right after high school. Didn't work out. I ended up going my uh, junior year, taking a junior year abroad and spending that there. I ended up you know, studying yeshiva most of the time, but also getting uh, a couple days a week uh, for a couple hours, getting some credits at Hebrew University. So I was able to, with that, able to finish my my college degree when I went back for a year to uh, to San Diego. But as soon as I entered the country, literally as soon as I was, you know, stepped foot in Israel, I, I just fell in love. And I decided pretty soon thereafter that I just wanted to stay. And I didn't want to go back uh, to finish that year of college, which I ended up doing, but ended up getting right back on the plane, literally, as soon as I graduated. I didn't even go to graduation, by the way. So it was just, it was like, it was just like I had fallen in love with uh, with the place, with the people, with you know, with the heritage that uh, I loved. So I found it my home, and still here, twenty years later. Well, did you know about going to Israel, going to yeshiva when you were growing up? Because if you did, if it was ready in the household, it would be normal. Okay, you want to go to Israel, but was it talked about when you were growing up? No, no, it wasn't talked about uh, really much at all, and. I had a little bit of, um, I wouldn't say a fight per se, but I had I, it didn't it didn't come easy. Let's just put it that way. I, I was kind of on my own in that decision, and so was in that regard. It was a little difficult, but I felt like you know many uh, many of our forefathers who had had gone on journeys, you know, going like like Avram Avinu going across the the ocean, going across the river. Right, he was on the other side. The whole world was against him, and and he went and did what he knew was right, what he felt was right. And uh, I kind of felt like I had my forebears to that decision. That's so interesting that you thought of it all on your own. You're saying that none of your friends went to Israel either. It was really, you just thought of it from learning the Torah and from understanding that our forefathers went to Israel. You wanted to go. No, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make it that, uh, that broad. There, I definitely knew people who went, but it wasn't something in my household that was, you know, that you know, no one else in my family had done and wasn't like something that was pushed that mm-hmm. this is something you should be doing. So that, that's all. I definitely knew people who went um, 
and knew people who, who you know, spoke about how great it was, which is why you know, I wanted to go as well. So have you gone, you went to Israel, I'm just trying to get, you know, the whole picture. You yeah, went sure. to Israel, did you come back for like a few months or did you stay there once you went, you didn't come back to America? No, I actually came back for almost an entire year to finish uh, the last year of, uh, of college, even though I really didn't want to, because I didn't really enjoy college so much. I uh, didn't, I mean, I didn't really feel like it was anything that was pushing me uh, to get a career or anything like that. I didn't have a drive for that at the time. And so, but I did feel like it was something that I, I had to do, something that I should do. And I decided that, you know, I made a commitment to finish. I started something, made a commitment to finish, and I ended up doing it in, in great style, believe it or not. I mean, <laughs> in, what do you in, mean? <laughs> what I mean is that I, I literally just put it out there that, hey, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back. But I'm, because I you know, fell in love with, uh, with the learning of Torah and uh, you know, in living in Israel, I literally felt like I was going to go back as soon as I, as soon as I fit graduated. So I put it in my mind that really I'm just going to continue what I started uh, back in San Diego, whether or not, you know, the, the place is the same. I'm just going to say, people ask me, where am I from? I'm going to say, I'm, I'm from Yerushalayim. I'm from Israel, right? Already when I was living there and I, you know, set up Chavrusas there. I set up, I ended up working for the Torah uh, High School of San Diego, living in the dorm as a dorm counselor in that final year of college. Ended up going to classes just like a couple times a week. Ended up making up my own classes um, where I would, I would learn and I'd write like a paper on, on some Torah subject, which was very cool. Cause I had some flexibility in doing that. But one thing that I found was that I didn't even know that something like that existed, that you can actually make up your own classes and get your own credits, as long as you find a professor that's willing to sign off on it. So I did what I think a lot of people should do. If you're in, find yourself in that situation, you know, reach out, find a professor, find someone that, you know, is personable, someone that you can relate to and, you know, just pitch the idea. And for mm -hmm. me, that's what I did. I really pitched the idea to like three different professors and they all bought into it. And so I literally was able to, to get wow. credits for, for classes that, uh, you know, for doing whatever, basically whatever I wanted to do. That's a very big change to happen right after high school. How old were you? You were 18, you were 19, 20. How old were you when you went to Israel? 20. So yeah, two years, uh, third year of college. Wow. So how was that transition for you? You're so used to the American lifestyle. Like even in America, the streets are even paved. Like it's right. so different. Everything it's is so different. different. It's so different. How is that transition for you when you went from America and you went to Israel? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that it's different. There, it's a different culture, you know, especially I was living in, in Yerushalayim, I was living in the old city for a little while. And so it's a totally different environment, different culture, but I didn't grow up with like this huge, you know, this mindset of, you know, loving the material world. Uh, my family, you know, we, we were pretty frugal, comfortable, you know, I'd say upper middle class, whatever I grew up, but I, I didn't have the things, you know, just everything at my fingertips. I had to work. So I had a work ethic, you know, already in high school, I had to, you know, have several different jobs so I could pay for whatever I wanted to, if I wanted extracurricular stuff or wanted to, you know, to buy myself things. So there wasn't this idea that, you know, Oh, the life of luxury and you know material existence is really what it's all about, which I think a lot of people in America and the Western culture in general are addicted to. Uh, this this comfort and this you know you know I don't want to put anyone down, but decadence of just living in the material world. And so for me, the spiritual pursuit of just living in a place and not even thinking about 
how almost like, you know, in, in certain senses, like a third world country, uh, it's a very advanced yeah. country in a lot of senses, but on the other side of the coin, you go to, to Mayasharam and things like that, where people live, like you can't tell the side, you know, if they pull out their, you know, their cell phone or whatever, but you can't tell that this place has been transported back a hundred years or, or not, because the people live like as if it were. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so interesting because I'm from America and I didn't realize how much I have and how much, you know, it's, it's accessible for me in America until I went to Israel. When I went to seminary, I was like, wow, I live in America. It's such a difference. Even if people are, you know, not living a luxury lifestyle, you still have so much more here in America. So I want to ask you this question. I know that you can't say you don't miss anything about America. Come on, you can't. Like if I would go to Israel right now, I would need my holy schnitzel. You know, it's down the block for me right here in Cedarhurst. The sandwiches are so amazing. The sauces are great. There's perfect parking. In Israel, you have to take a bus. And holy schnitzel, the sandwich is just like delicious. They put such good stuff in it. So that's what I would miss. Don't tell me there's nothing that you miss from America. Come on. There's certainly things that, you know, I, you know, I miss. Uh, you can miss things, you know, wherever you go in life. But it's really about the decisions you're making and the you know places you're going and, and being totally in love with who, where you are and what you're doing and the people you're with at the time. So yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there are things I miss. I mean, uh, so what is it? A chocolate people. bar, like the cars? <laughs> what do you miss? <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely miss traffic. Uh, yeah, it's a big thing. No, uh, um, I don't know. You can't you can't really get American style pizza in Israel. It's just that is very true. It's different. It's a totally different uh, thing. So if I were to mention, you know, one thing, I don't know, maybe that would be it. Maybe it would be customer service. Uh, <laughs> it's very hard to get uh, customer service in Israel. It's just a different culture. Uh, but you grow, you, you get used to it. You just get used to it. And I think uh, if you want to survive, you want to succeed in a different place, you have to get used to the different culture. You can't think like, oh, I'm just going to, get here exactly what i had even somewhere else no you have to sacrifice and i think that's an important thing was the language a difficulty for you not really i actually when i was in college you know i grew up with some hebrew but um i in college i actually took because i, I knew i wanted to go to israel as soon as you know re, like i said right after high school it ended up happening for a couple of years but i ended up taking classes in university for that first so i took hebrews i took two years of, of uh of Hebrew. So my Hebrew was pretty proficient in terms of speaking. I had some friends that I spoke with and you just immerse yourself. You, you get involved with it. I'm pretty good with languages, uh, picked up pretty quickly. And so therefore uh, it wasn't that big of a barrier for me. That's good. And do you ever feel like homesick for your family, for America when you're in Israel or are you completely, you would say you're an Israeli 100%? Well, I think they're two completely different statements there. So I'm not going to agree to both of them. I, I, I don't consider myself an Israeli uh, by any by any standards, although my kids are pretty Israeli. That's for sure. <laughs> and it's really hard to get around that. But um, but no, I'm not really homesick. I mean, I consider this my home. Like I, I live here. I love it here. Um, you know, I work remotely. So I work in America. And so I'm dealing with Americans all day long, every day. English is really my primary speaking language, although for many years, um, Yiddish was my primary spoken language. And so I didn't have, you know, English was kind of hard for me to get back into, to, to speak regularly. And Hebrew for, for a couple of years also, I was speaking Hebrew fluently, and that was my you know, first language. So it's just a, a comedy. It, it's really about 
where your environment is. And mm -hmm. I totally see, have seen that how based on where your environment is and who you're speaking to, who you're hanging around with, that's going to influence you and is going to have uh, an effect on you. For sure. Now let's talk a little bit about your parents and your family. How did they feel when you were 20 years old and decided, okay, I want to pick up and I want to go to Israel? Well, they've always been very supportive of, you know, myself and my siblings to do what we, what, you know, what we want to do and make, you know, kind of put us in that role of having our own independence. And part of that had to do with having us get jobs when we were in high school so that we could pay for our own, uh, own things and they're paying for, for college as well. And so there was a lot of independence stressed in that regard. And so they totally supported my decision in, in that regard. Like they respected that, but at the same time, they, they didn't, you know, they wanted me to stay. They wanted me to, to so there was that kind of, um, a kind of rift that was created when, when I did go and basically said, well, I'm going, I'm never coming back. Wow. <laughs> it not, it wasn't personal. It wasn't like, you know, I'm leaving you guys, whatever, but it was just like, Hey, this is where I feel like I need to go. This is my life. This is where I want to, I want to see where it takes me. And I think they were very supportive of that. To a and certain how are extent. they feeling? Although, although at the same time, and I think, you know, continually, they, they're still, wanted me to be there they didn't support necessarily uh support me in terms of financially definitely but didn't support that they they had their own ideas for me and mm -hmm. i think it's really important for for kids not to disrespect your parents or go against their wishes but to realize that you have your own life and you have to make decisions that are are going to be best for you even if they're go contrary to what your parents might think if you don't mind me asking, what did your parents want for you? Um, I don't think they wanted anything specific. It was just they felt like going to a foreign land and just like never coming back. Although I did come back, obviously, but being extreme there. But was, you know, especially like I wasn't going to get a job. I wasn't going to, you know, they always had concerns. How am I going to support family? How am I going to do mm -hmm. this and that? So I think that was it as well. And how are they feeling about it today? Um, you know, they, they kind of got used to the fact, although mm -hmm. still, you know, they still have that uh, kind of grudge, like oh, you, you, could, you could live here also, you know, you could, you could be here. But you still talk to them and you're still sure, close with them. And how do you, you communicate like through Zoom or have you, well, this is actually what I want to ask you. And then we're going to move on to what you do, but. <laughs> I love this background. This story is incredible how you just like picked up and left and started life. It's showing everybody how important it is to live for you and find what you actually really want to do and like go for it. So how, when was the last time you've actually been in America? Um, so with the, the, the recent job that I have uh, the past few years, I've been, I travel every other month basically. So with COVID oh. happening, I, I didn't travel that much, but I was there, you know, now we're in, uh, in November, the last trip I was in March so really really right before the travel bans uh, came in I was in LA in January where my parents live so that's the last time I saw them oh so you're here all the time I thought you like left and didn't come back for 20 well, years <laughs> there was well there was basically I mean there to a certain extent I, I did go and, and ended up you know we didn't really get to the full extent of the story but for about 14 years or so I totally immersed myself in Torah in learning and um I did, I did travel. I went back maybe twice during that time. Wow. So from when you left like, for 14 years, 
Yeah, you know, basically like Jacob Avino, you know, he went to Beishem Ve'ever for 14 years and stood, you know, and studied there and totally immersed. That's uh, kind of how I felt like I was doing. Right. So talking about, about you going to Israel, you decided to go to learn and you said, okay, I'm going to learn. And you're saying now that you learned for 14 years. What made you decide, okay, I'm going to start working. And how did you get into real estate and start working for Madison if you were learning literally straight for 14 years? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I, I didn't have that decision at the, at the, you know, right at the beginning when I started learning just, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to spend 14 years doing this. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a gradual uh, decision, a gradual process of just, oh, I love doing this. I'm enjoying it. I'm in Colo. I'm learning. Uh, I don't see a foreseeable, you know, future. I'm going to get a job. Maybe, you know, I learned how to be a sofa for a while. I was doing that a little, you know, trying to, I was a tutor. I was getting some, you know, getting some side jobs, basically getting paid. But at a certain point, a lot of people go to, and this is kind of a funny, funny thing I like to say is that a lot of people like to um, make that joke that, oh, they go to, to go to learn in Israel. And then when the money runs out, right, then they, they have to go get a job. So that's how a lot of people approach it. So for me, the money ran out. And then like, you know, 10 years later, I decided to, to get a job. But that's, no, so, but to be with joking aside, I didn't really see any other lifestyle. I, I loved what I was doing. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very difficult. There was uh, definitely went into debt having to, to live there and the lifestyle that I wanted to, which I wouldn't recommend for everyone. Uh, but I, I, I loved what I was doing. I was teaching, I was learning and raising a family. There came a certain point where I actually had a, you know, a personal uh, family um, health crisis, I would say, which kind of forced me out of my comfort zone and forced me to see, you know, kind of take a step back, reevaluate things and say, okay, this is not going in the same direction that uh, I could have. I didn't have, you know, the access to, to money that I needed at the time to, to do what we needed to do. And I said, listen, I need to take a little more um, responsibility. I need to take a little more accountability for myself and my family and just decide, okay, let's, let's, see what's out there. I'm open to opportunities. And I think a lot of my mindset from, you know, for all my life has just been just go with the flow, like see what happens. I don't have like a 10 year plan. I don't have a five year plan. I have, let's go with the flow. Let's see where opportunities come. Let's see where, you know, call it Hashgacha Pratis, you know, the divine providence, where is Hashem leading me? And that's what exactly what I did. And I said, listen, put it out there to Hashem, you know, put out some, some davening, some tefillahs saying, what, what does Hashem want for me right now? And I saw, yeah, I needed to, I needed to find a job and find something that was going to bring in more, uh, more income to my family. That, uh, that happened, literally, I just started putting it out there to a few different people saying, some friends, hey, by the way, you know, I'm doing this now, I'm looking for something. What do you have? Any ideas, anything? And I came, I did a lot of introspection at that time. And one thing that I came to was I decided, okay, I'm not going to go back to school, any formal education. I didn't like college or anything like that to the degree. And I decided, okay, so I need to find some sort of field that does not require any formal education. It's my, I learn on the field, you know, much better. Mm -hmm. I learn apprenticing, hanging out with people you know, doing that kind of thing. And the second thing I decided was, okay, so now let's, of the possibilities that are out there in the world, that I don't have to have any formal education, what industry 
or what field has the maximum potential of income out there? Wow. Right? Because if I'm going to do something, I may as well do something with a huge potential of opportunity. Hashem's endless. And uh, so that's why. So real estate was basically, um, that, that was the answer. And I spoke to a few people and that was kind of the direction I was put in. And then I saw, uh, like I said, I put it out there to a few friends. An opportunity came my way. A friend of mine was, uh, you know, he said, hey, I have, he's been, he'd been working in commercial mortgages for a number of years. And he started doing his own thing. And he's like, like, why don't you come work with me? Why don't you do something we'll work together? I'll show you the ropes. I'll teach you about commercial real estate. And that's basically what I did. So long story short, from that point on, I just was open up to the world of real estate. Very quickly wow. got connected with a lot of very influential people and just enjoyed, enjoyed doing it. I got my real estate broker's license in Israel. And so I started working on the residential side just to see, hey, what, what is there here? Did that for a couple of years, about close to two years. Didn't like it so much. Um, mm -hmm. Saw some success, but was not, I just didn't like the, the cultural, <laughs> the cultural uh, interactions that, that was with Israelis. And I said, I, I relate much more to Americans. And so let's find something that's going to be a kind of remote working. I know people do it all over the world. They work remotely. So I found this company, Madison amazing company, Madison Title, Madison Commercial Real Estate. A lot of people know of them, especially in the tri-state area. Mm -hmm. And literally, I spoke to a friend of mine in real estate for, for years and years, and, you know, at least 10, 15 years. And he said, oh, Madison, they're the tzaddikim of real estate. Wow. That's, that's what his words were. I'm like, oh, listen, that, that sounds like a good fit. I don't know. <laughs> Is it a Jewish so, company? Yeah, it's a Jewish company. Okay. It's a, they're from the, uh, the owners of the company, principals. And so I was like, okay, sounds like a perfect fit. <laughs> and, and that's got a job working with them. And all the rest is history. Basically. Was it hard to get a job with them since you didn't go to college? I mean, you said you don't need it for real estate, but how did, how was that process of getting a job after saying that you learned for 14 years and then you're starting, like, did they ask questions? How did they feel? Well, since I did have, I had spent, you know, before I started with them, I'd spent the last couple of, you know, two, three years almost in the real estate doing commercial mortgages for a little while and then doing the residential brokers. So I had a background in real estate. People nowadays don't really hire based on uh, college education. I think sure. it's, it's a little overrated at this point, unless you're going for something very specific that you need the skills that a college degree will get you. I think it's very overrated. Um, getting a college degree. That's just my personal opinion. So um, if you have something, you know what you're, you're doing, definitely, you know, it's something you need to get a graduate degree because you know exactly what you want to do. Right. But uh, since I found, you know, and I'm 40 years old, I've been, been around the block a little bit. I've spoken to a lot of people, my peers, people my age. A lot of people, believe it or not, do not do anything that has to do with their college degree. I'd it's say actually the vast, very true. Majority, the vast majority of people. I did a very interesting, and I use LinkedIn a lot for my kind of social, social experiments. And I put a post out there a while back, a year or two ago. It was just like, you know, my, my degree is in blank. And now I work in blank. And I had like hundreds, I mean, hundreds of responses. It went viral. It was like 100,000 views or whatever. Wow. Like hundreds of responses. And the vast majority of them were totally like, I got my degree in, you know, finance. And now I... I work in, you know, agricultural, whatever, like totally different. Wow. 
Of course, there so are what? people. I got my degree in accounting and I'm an accountant. Of course, there are people like that. Mm-hmm. But like what I'm saying is, unless you know this is what your passion is, this is what you want to do, mm-hmm. don't think that you have to go to college, right, to, right. to be successful. I tell people go to college because you find out who you are and you find out what you love. You know, there's so many, if you don't, if you don't try so many things, you're not going to know what you love. You have to try it out first. So let's talk about what cost segregation actually is. Our listeners may not know what that is. So what is cost segregation? So cost segregation is a weird name, but basically what it means is, uh, well, take a step back. It's a, it's a service that our company provides for real estate owners that allows them to get huge income tax deductions, huge income tax uh, benefits. So that's the background of what it is. What it specifically is has to do with uh, properties, um, get a tax deduction from the government, IRS called depreciation. Depreciation is a deduction you get based on the fact that you bought a building. What we do is something called accelerating that depreciation. We can take by segregating the cost of your building, that's what it means, into different categories that things depreciate on faster rates. You can take big tax deductions in the, you know, in the first year, the first five years, instead of having to spread it out over a very long period of time. So in a nutshell, without getting into uh, the gory details, that's, that's what cost segregation is. Now I have this question for you because uh, I was, you know, learning about cost segregation because I'm interviewing you, and I was I wasn't sure if somebody owns a house because you're saying property owners is that yeah. considered or is it only if you own, let's say, a building in let's say Manhattan or wherever the building is? But is because I know that a house is not a primary asset, right? It's not considered an asset. So is that could that could could you help out with somebody who owns a house? So if it's your own personal residence, so mm-hmm. the answer is no. Right. Okay. Um, so the depreciation deduction the government gives is for rental property or business property. Mm-hmm. And so if it's your personal residence, you don't get that. Uh, you, you can't benefit from, from this. But if right, you that's own a house that's a rental property, you could. Uh, if you, you, know, you have a, a short-term rental or long-term rental, any type of property, doesn't have to be commercial, doesn't have to be a building, doesn't have to be in Manhattan. It could be, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right, anywhere. Anyway. So why does the government do that? Because maybe the government would think like, oh, we're giving you so much off your taxes right away. What is in it for them? Because there's always something in it for the government. There is always something in it for the government. I think if you study, if you know, if one were to, I'm not saying you should do this, but mm-hmm. if one were to study taxes and how they mm-hmm. work in anywhere in the world, any country in the world, you'll find that it's really an incentive uh, program. That's what taxes are. The first 10 pages of the tax code are the different, you know, tax rates that everyone has to pay. The rest of it, you know, the rest of, you know, 725 pages of it is all different ways that you can get deductions, different ways that businesses can benefit, et cetera. Basically, the point being is that it's not, taxes are not there so that people have to pay taxes per se. They're a system in place for people who are smart right? To take advantage of all the deductions, all of the incentives that the government puts in place. So when you study any tax law, you'll find that there are certain incentives that are put there because they're contributing to the economy, right? Mm. They want to tax people businesses. They want to tax people that make more money because you know, they're contributing to the economy more, 
right, by making more money. So they want to tax them, but they also give business deductions for the same people. So there's a whole give and take. So again, real estate, when you study that, you realize that real estate and property specifically is a huge contribution to the economy. People need a place to live, for example. So, mm -hmm. and businesses need a, a place to operate. And when you put all that together and you see that this is such an integral and essential part of the economy, then the fact that the government is giving these deductions to incentivize people to, you know, to buy buildings, to buy property, then it makes a lot of sense. Right. So hearing you speak, it just makes me think that maybe you recommend people not owning an actual house. If you have a house, maybe rent it and put money into real estate where you could actually make more money from. That's a, you know, it's a great conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great topic. I know there's a lot of debate about this, whether you should own your own house, whether, you know, your personal residence is considered an asset or a liability. Mm -hmm. uh, without going down that rabbit hole, the, there definitely is, you know, there's a lot to be said about owning your own house. Okay. There's mm -hmm. also a lot to be said by having your money make money for you. Okay. And right. the wealthy people, when you study the wealthy people in the world, they don't have one stream of income. You know, mostly people have multiple streams of income, which means that if any one thing were to stop, they still can survive, right? And they still can thrive because they have income, they have money, money coming in from multiple sources. So to have your own personal residence, you're putting money into that, right? You're making money from wherever and then just putting money into the ground, basically, right? right? Paying off your mortgage, just putting it into the ground. Whereas if you rented a place, yes, you're renting, you're also putting that money into the ground. But if you had money that would be enough to buy a house and invested a portion of that, you mm -hmm. could have that money be making money for you. And, you know, the income from that could actually go to pay your rent. Right. And beyond that. So right. there's definitely one, one great example of that. And where you could actually do both is something that in the industry is called house hacking. So you can Google that, house hacking. Okay. But, but what it means is basically if you live in a multiple unit house, you buy a multiple unit house, like let's say a duplex, right? Or a threeplex, mm -hmm. three-story. And you live in one unit and you rent out the other units. So what you end up doing is you can take a mortgage out. It's your personal residence. And you can get a loan because loans for your personal residence are much more favorable. I mean, you can literally buy a house with 5% down or 3.5% wow. down with the FHA loan, which for commercial, for business, for rental properties, you can't do that. Maybe 30% maybe down, 20% down at best. But when you're buying your own house, you can actually have a mortgage and have the renters in your other unit pay off the mortgage. So you're actually having your place and you get both best of both worlds. So you can actually live in your own house and also have those renters that are paying off the mortgage because the income coming in from that. And then you could get that also the cost segregation um, from the government with the taxes because you have, it's as if you invested a, in the real estate. Yeah, it's a rental property at the same time. Wow, that's so cool. So let me ask you this question. I know that you were learning for 14 years and now you're doing this. How has your lifestyle changed? Uh, my lifestyle, you know, in terms of you know, quality of life or anything like that has changed very little. If, if to none, you know, um, wow. because, you know, we live very frugally. I think, uh, I don't have any fancy things, right. A little car. I mean, usually we don't really need to own a car, right. But you, I don't, 
own any fancy things like no watches or anything. Like, I don't care about that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. What I care about is providing for my family. And that's number one. And that has always been number one. And so if I can make enough money to give them what they need, what, they're, mm -hmm. what they want, that to me, I'm satisfied. If I have more money that I can now use that and invest that and have, you know, be able to provide for my kids when they grow up, that's mm -hmm. even better. And so that's really, that's really what it's all about. Wow. So incredible. Let me ask you this. The, the mantra of Hebrew hits is it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. How would you say that this mantra applies to your life? I think I've been blessed with uh, a couple of things. And, you know, everyone needs to look inside themselves and see what are the skills, you know, what are the talents that you have? And don't, don't try to, you know, hide them. Don't try to think, you know, oh, I'm too humble to admit what those talents are. Because humility is not saying, oh, I'm nothing and I don't have any talents or anything like that. Humility is, is seeing, you know, how great you are. But realizing that, number one, it's all from Hashem. It's not from you. Okay, so that's number one part of humility. The second part of humility is realizing that as great as I you know, may be in all these gifts that have been given, it's nothing compared to what my potential is. And so I think of those you know, skills or what I have and what I'm doing with that, number one is that I, I believe I have uh, a very good ability to, because you know, my background is in learning and teaching, I love to teach. And so one of the things that I've kind of been blessed with is that ability in public speaking and, and, and teaching. So I love that. So I'm doing with that in a different mm -hmm. sense. I try to do it, you know, in everything that I do, but just to help other people and to teach other people uh, to try to get ahead uh, where they're at now. That's number one. Number two would be, and it kind of goes together with that, but I've always had this really innate sense of giving, right? Wow. The, um, you know, whether I was born, my, my birthday is on, the second day of Pesach. So for anyone listening who knows about the sphere, so Omer, you know that there's different attributes and without getting into, you know, Kabbalah or anything like that, the first, the second day of Pesach is called Chesed Shiva Chesed. So it's, mm -hmm. it's the giving of the giving. It's like the ultimate giver, right? That was Avram Avinu. And so that, I feel like that has something to do with my, my life's mission. Mm -hmm. And so how much I can give, how much I can help other people uh, contribute, give back. And so that's uh, why... I think I do a lot of what I do. Now they're saying that you're such a giver. And I really do believe it has something to do with when you're born, especially Chesed Shabbat Chesed. Can you share one or two stories where you knew if you give to this person, there's no way you're getting back. But anything from this person you still gave. And how did it make you feel after giving to this person with knowing you're not getting anything back in return? Well, I think one of the... Um like the Rambam list, the different forms of charity, different forms of stuff. And the highest form is to, to give to someone in a way that you're actually teaching them. Mm -hmm. You're teaching them or you're giving them a profession. You're, get, you're teaching them, right? Like, you know, there's old famous, they say this from the Rambam, they say it's a Chinese, you know, thing that if you teach, you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. I think it's really the same idea, the same concept, whether it's from the Rambam or from the, you know, the Chinese. But... Mm -hmm you know, for me to help other people get, get jobs. And so for, for example, LinkedIn has become this incredible networking place for me that I can just literally help people on a whim, like no, no idea. Like someone just messaged me today, like, Oh, can you help me? Uh, my post over here, someone I'm, I'm hiring, I'm looking for someone. Do you know anyone that's looking? So I just like tag a bunch of people that I think would be able to specifically that I think will be able to live in her city. Mm -hmm. If someone gets a job from that, 
that's great. And I've literally, I've seen that multiple times where you can do something so simple as that by using this networking platform to help connect mm -hmm. other people. I mean, I've, I do that literally on a daily basis, just trying to connect other people one to another. So I think that's yeah. one, it's not a specific story, uh, but it is something that I think everyone can do and should do to make connections, like try to introduce people and don't think about, oh, what am I going to get out of it? What am I going to, uh, maybe I'll get a commission for this. Maybe I'll get something. No, just see how you can help someone else. LinkedIn is an incredible, incredible platform. When did you start LinkedIn? Um, so I started like actively involved in pre posting pretty regularly, um, almost on a daily basis, close to three years ago. Oh, wow. So, so I think, yeah, it, it's close to three years ago at this point. Um, I just found it. I saw other people doing it. And I was like, hey, if they're doing it, I can do it also. And I immediately started getting traction, getting business directly from it. And so I was like, oh, well, this is, this is amazing. Let's just keep doing it, put more into it, the more I'm getting out of it. And so I've followed people who are in the marketing world because I find that social media is an incredible place to market yourself. It's an mm -hmm. incredible place to, um, you know, to kind of do that business to business networking that especially nowadays, you can't travel everywhere. And for me that I'm living across the ocean, Right, you can't necessarily go face-to-face -face meetings every day, or every week with with people, which right. I would love to. Uh, but here's an opportunity to actually connect with those people all over the world, and it's become yeah. such an acceptable form of of business yeah. that it just fits perfectly. So you're talking about giving, and LinkedIn is that one platform that I find because I was on other platforms before. I'm not really as active on those as I am on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I find that people are there to help you. People are not there just to make a buck off of you. They really genuinely want to help me. People message me, you know, I have this amazing person for you to interview, this amazing person for you to interview. People are sharing my podcast without me even asking them. If I do it on other platforms, I would have to beg someone to share it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So is that how you feel as well? Since you're such a giver, you feel that LinkedIn really is such a good place. I really, really personally enjoy it. Absolutely. There is obviously there's a certain extent of kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Mm -hmm. um, but people are very willing to do it. I, mean, I think that's the point you're making is that people are much more open to, to that because they realize that business is really about networking. It's about, you know, who you know, mm -hmm. how you interact with them. And the openness of the people, and I have a very, very vast wide network, well, well beyond the kind of Jewish community of New York, which, uh, you know, I think is not unique, but it's something that you really need to do and you have the opportunity mm -hmm. to do and kind of just branch out there and get yourself in front of the right people. Mm -hmm. It's tremendous. It is. I want to talk about your own podcast. I know that you have a show as well. When did you start this podcast? What is it called? What is it about? Who do you focus on? Who do you interview? So it's called the Weiss Advice Podcast. And it, I started it about six months ago, officially. Uh, and it started because I was actually have been a guest on, at that point, you know, close to 100 uh, podcasts. Yeah. At this point, over 150 podcasts. And what, what I found is I really enjoy these kind of conversations. You know, I love talking to people. I love having this kind of interaction, even though, you know, it's, we're on Zoom and, you know, we're not sitting in the same room there. That'd be a lot of fun. I've done some personal interviews also in person, but what I found is that it's just a lot of fun and it's podcasting in general 
I'm very supportive of. I think it's a huge uh, medium, like an incredible medium to be mm-hmm. able to put yourself out there, right? A great medium to be able to connect with the right people. It's a great medium to be able to, you know, interview people who you actually want to do business with. Mm-hmm. You can kind of suck, suck up to them in a way by, hey, would you like to be on my podcast? And they want get their own exposure through that. You're helping them at the same time you're adding value to right. your audience. So because I had an already kind of big existing audience and following through LinkedIn mm-hmm. uh, for the past couple of years, I was like, okay, let's, let's just do this. This would be great. But I didn't really know what the podcast was going to be about because it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to... Uh, right. I have this audience is another thing to enjoy podcasting as a guest, mm-hmm. but at the same, and as a teacher, you know, kind of the interviewing process and asking those questions, I, I think I, I enjoy a lot, but, but then, well, what's it about? Right. <laughs> so right. that was a little difficult to kind of figure out what it was. And then I decided I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna have open conversations and hopefully it'll be a way to just get to know people mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, similar to what we're doing here, but yeah. get to know people who may be interviewed on many other podcasts, may be out there in the business world and are successful people, but you don't, may not really know, you know what's really going on with them, what, what they're really all about. And when you have an yeah. unscripted conversation, things come out that you've never heard before, right? Or no one's ever heard before. And it's just right. recording a conversation. And I think with those people who are people that I think others would like to listen to, it's a great opportunity. So that's what I did. It's mostly focused, I'd say 90% or more, or it's very real estate focused, meaning those mm-hmm. people that I interview are people who are in the real estate business, right? They're in mm-hmm. the industry and they're probably known, probably well-known in the industry. And I just have an opportunity to kind of interview them like a talk show in a way where you're just yeah. getting to know them, just talking, having a conversation. Similarly, like what we're doing here. Exactly. That's the beauty of podcasting. It's a conversation that's recorded. You have a real conversation. That's what, sh- my, that's what my show is all about. It's about being real, finding out who the person is. I always tell people like before I interview them, I say, I'm, I'm focusing on who you are as a person, not as what you do, not as what your name is. Who is, who are you? Who is Yona Weiss? You know, that's what I focus on. Before we go, I want to ask you if you can please share some thoughts of wisdom that you've really been inspired by and has helped you out through your life. If you could share that with us and our listeners, that'd be really incredible. Uh, one of the biggest things that I live with daily is that obviously our sages teach us tons of valuable lessons and, and living, you know, immersed in that in the Torah for so many years, it's just mm-hmm. become part of me. And, you know, how you think. Uh, I don't like so much the all the conventional wisdom that's out there in the world today all these books, these self-help books and all these things, because I feel like everything, whenever I've read any of those, having you know learned the Torah and gone through so much of it in such depth, it's all there. It's literally all there. I know it sounds like cliche, you heard your Rebbe say that, you heard someone say it, everything's in the Torah, but really when you've gone through the Torah and you really understand it um, and have been around people who do, and then you read some of this other stuff, right? The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's a great book, right? But mm-hmm. it's all it's all from the Torah. Literally, like everything that's in that book is in Sefer Tanya. Like everything, okay? <laughs> There's nothing new. There's no no chidushim for me. But and and all the other books out there. So for me, I always go back to the Torah. I always go back to you know our sages, what they teach us, 
And so one thing that, you know, it says, right? who's, a, who's a wise person? What's wisdom, right? You're looking for mm-hmm. wisdom. You're asking, what's something wisdom that you take with? Well, who is a wise person? What is it? It's someone who learns from everyone. It's when you wow. can get, get away, get beyond yourself, right? To think, mm-hmm. oh, I can't listen to advice from him or her, my kid, right? Or my, <laughs> right. my coworker or my, my com- competition or my, you know, or this or that, or the neighbor, or the guy in the shul that I can't stand. I can't listen to that. No, you have to actually, if you want wisdom, you have to be willing to learn from everyone. Now, right. sometimes the, what you're going to learn from some people is what not to do, right? Or That's how true. not to think or how not to act, right? Right. <laughs> For sure. But, but you have to be, have to have that, um, that humility to, to actually be able to be open to learning from everyone. When you talk about learning from everyone, you don't mean that you should have five, six, seven, ten mentors. You mean that your eyes should be open to actually seeing what can I learn from what's going on in front of me from the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and not just people, but literally every situation, right? Everything mm-hmm. that we do in life, everything that happens to us or everything that we experience is a learning experience, something to learn from that. And uh, yeah, this, is, this is a great a great quote. Someone pointed out to me this. It says, uh, fail, right? Failure is some people think of failure as just a learning experience. So fail is actually the acronym, right? F-A-I-L is first attempt in learning. Okay, when when wow. you when you when you fail, you make a mistake. You, it's it's not something that should be a setback. You could actually take that mm-hmm. and and move forward with that because really, it's just a learning experience. Everything in life is there to to learn from. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking your time to to sit down with me today. Anytime. Yeah. No, this has been a fun. Thanks so much. It's been really fun. Well, you just listened to the thirty eighth episode of Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia. That was Yona Weiss. He is the cost segregation expert. How can they get in touch with you if they want to ask you any questions? You can find me on LinkedIn. That's actually the quickest response you'll get from me, or you can go to yonawice.com. Okay, you heard it from Yona Weiss, yonawice.com, and you can go follow him and DM him on LinkedIn. Please go follow Heber Hits Radio on YouTube. Push the subscribe button, share, like, and follow, and go follow at Hebrew underscore hits on all your favorite social medias, which is Instagram, Facebook. I'm also available on LinkedIn and go follow Hebrew Hits on all your favorite streaming apps. Thank you so much for being here. We'll be back next week, same time, same place.